Welcome back to another episode of the Jewish Moves Podcast. This week's episode is with Nissan Black. With four albums, 39 singles, almost 30 million views on his YouTube channel, concerts and tours around the world, and many more accomplishments, Nissan is a household name in Jewish homes. Nissan, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm doing amazing. Baruch Hashem. Thank you. That's amazing stats. Like it. I, I never even like pay attention to any of that. We will discuss all that soon, but I'm curious if growing up in Seattle with parents who were pioneers in the world of rap was something you ever thought you would follow, not even in the Jewish world, but just in the world of rapping in general. Yeah, from the time I was a kid, I knew I was going to be a musician of some sort. You know, I, I thought I was going to be a singer at one point, then I thought I was going to be a rapper, but there was no doubt about it that I knew that music was, uh, was you know, started off with just like my desire, the thing that I always wanted to do when I was a kid. And this was even before I knew my parents were even active. Um, so I had no idea. I literally came, um, you know, uh, into the world singing, dancing, performing, you know. And they used to always say to me when I was a kid, like, you know, we're going to have you on ABC Kids. I mean, that's like way old, old now. But they really always wanted me in talent shows, whatever. I was, if there was a camera on me, I was just that type of kid. Uh, so it, it made more sense when I think I was around maybe 11, 12, I think around that time when I found out that my parents, like, I heard them talk about it before, but then I found an old uh, photo album. And I seen pictures of my mother and my father and, you know, uncles like opening up for Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and, uh, you know, Kumo D. And like, I was like, wow, they really were like, you know, at their first record. So I was like, wow, was it really, you know, so things start to piece themselves together that, you know, maybe perhaps I was born to do this. Wow. And uh, unlike some of the other singers we've had on the show, I think your path was not as simple. Someone like Benny Friedman and Avram Fried as his uncle who could guide him and his father was very supportive and supported his vocal lessons at a young age. I think your life was a little bit different in terms of drugs and the family and the community. Can you explain a little bit of what, what it was like growing up in Seattle? Yeah, grow, growing up in an inner city, you are very much so exposed to life of crime, drug, violence, uh, all different types of abuses. Um, so I was exposed to that without any type of filter, really. Like, you know, my parents were never... They were young, also, too. I think my mother had me when she was, like, 18. Um, I know that she wasn't Hasidish. But, they, but you know, it was very much so... Like, I always say... My parents used to say it. I actually still know from them. I grew up with them, sort of. And because of that, they're very young. And that young mentality of, of you know, obviously, inner city. Like, you don't shield your kids from those things. In fact, you you expose them. You're probably overexposed. So I grew up overexposed. Um, now, for some kids, that could be a very, very dangerous thing. And other kids, depending on, like I, I, I would say, of the makeup of the soul of the person, um, that I grew up with a lot of fear. So I <laughs> I didn't want to keep doing the things I kept seeing everybody going to jail for. And, and now you, you do those things because they're part of your environment. But, you know, I, I there was... To some degree, I always tiptoed growing up into getting into trouble. And so I never got into very, very big trouble. Um, but I always tiptoed around. And I and I was able to learn from a lot of other people's mistakes. But, yeah, you said it. I, I definitely didn't have, I would say, easy road. Looking back, I can't even imagine, like, being in some of the same environments that I grew up in, like, today. Like, I wouldn't even know how to respond. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a completely different. But when you're there, it's just the way you grow up. Wow, and now when I was looking into you before the episode, I came across that you were expelled from school for bringing a gun and were also in a kill or be killed situation at a later point in your life. And there were definitely other issues that threatened you in many ways as a young kid. What was it that led you away 
from that life and not, not necessarily towards Judaism, but towards change in general. I think it was because I had this thing. I don't know what it is always inside of me to where I knew that that I had a purpose in this world. I knew that there was a reason why my soul was here. I felt a very like uh, there was like this very um, hidden deep connection that I had even with God, I used to love to hear people talk about God. Now, the, the truth is, most of the time I heard people talking about God is when they were, you know, uh, um, heavily sedated on drugs or, or alcohol or whatever. But people used to talk about us. I was always intrigued by these type of things, even as a kid, and always felt like there was a certain sense of closeness, I, I guess I would say, as a kid, for no reason at all, is what I'm telling you. Like, I can't even think of a reason why I had that. And things became more defined over time. So by the time... I think I was, you know, first introduction to religion was Islam. My grandfather was a Sunni Muslim. I prayed with them five times a day when I was a kid. And then when I was around 13, um, I got involved with the Christian uh, organization after school, which I think this being there really saved my life. That, like, I was headed down a very, very dark path um, very quickly, even. And being there gave me a different perspective on life. Like, I realized over there that not everybody's parents sold drugs. Not every, It was just sort of like being in a different place where it just felt less dysfunctional, you know, being around them, those people really became my family. And I still today am, and have a total, uh, total love for those people. Um, and then, you know, what would happen after that, having this very strong um, conversion to Christianity, very strong Bible thumping, uh, you know, I guess I would say, I say to coup for a season in my life, right around, um, when I was getting ready to graduate, maybe halfway through my 11th grade year of high school, a demo of mine made it to the desk of an A&R from a, a hip-hop, uh, from, from a record label, major record label. And so we started having, you know, conversations, and that, that led to talks about a, about a, a music deal. But the, the thing they wanted was gangster rap, which I morally was not where I was at that point in my life. However, I caved in. I went with uh, what they were asking me. And um, and it's very interesting because I was putting out music, even though I, I thought to myself, like, I'm just going to pretend. But what happened was I sort of ended up coming more and more into that uh, character that I that I was that was pretending to be. And I found myself very confused. So, that you know, obviously the, the thing that would straighten this out is something big, something you know, ground shaking has to happen. And that's when you mentioned the kill or be killed situation. I got into a beef with another rapper and, uh, you know, I fought growing up and I was fighting and getting in fights and different things like that. But um, a friend of mine tried to kill another guy and he thought that I was the one behind it. And so they tried to, uh, well, the, the plan was that they were going to try to take my life. So it was either a kill or be killed situation by me. And that led me to pray. Um, I had, you know, memory of, of those times when I was 15, 16 years old. I would lock myself in my room and cry and pray to God when I was that young Bible-thumping Christian. I never went to any class without my Bible in my hand. I had highlighted it. So, uh, you know, here I am already by this time I was maybe 19 or whatever and uh, completely lost from that kid who I was at 15, 16 years old. I, like, already was in a different planet. And when God shook me up, I start praying. I start praying. And that that really began the the beginning of me wanting to see. And it was just a process of me just uh, just trying to get in a better mind state, you know, shaking and shedding friends that that weren't, weren't good or weren't healthy for, for that type of growth. Um, and uh, it was a, it was a it felt like a long process, but it took me about, you know, I would say 
two two and a half years or so after that before I turned and started realizing uh, Judaism was uh, was the path for me. You just mentioned some of the memories from your childhood, and I assume most people listening have heard you speak about it either on another podcast at a shul school or some other place. One of the things I think does not get any attention at all is the positive memories of your youth. Is there anything positive or positive people that you look back on and say this was a great influence or a great memory, or was everything negative? Yeah, no, for sure. I had a cousin, uh, cousin Marcus, who I looked up to. My cousin Marcus was, he went to school, and it's very interesting. He had a father in his life. It's, very, it's so crazy when I think, look back on this, that a lot of the, the kids, even that I grew up with, um, well, it wasn't a lot of kids to begin with, but those who did have their father at home seemed to to have this very, very, you know, positive outcome. Even I look at it today, kids I went to high school with that had, you know, a strong nuclear family. The father and the mother was at home. These kids actually turned out like so much better than <laughs> a lot of other people. And since I did have a father and mother, I was raised by uh, my stepfather, who I call my dad. He he definitely was a dad for me. Um, not to take away from my biological father, um, who I didn't live with, but who also, too, is one of my most favorite people in the world. So I guess I get two for the price of one. Um, but they're not married to each other. Um, it was my mother. So I, um, so what happened was really was that I think my cousin, you know, was one of those people, he was sort of like that other father figure, you know, after a while, your parents are not cool to you, right? Like, it doesn't matter who it is. Like, your parents are not cool to you. But my older cousin was like, he was popular in school, but he was a very, very level-headed person. So he used to always like, you know, he would bully me, but he also like kept me very, very, um, he, he was very much something to aspire to be like, you know, um, very, very positive. Like I said, he turned out very well. And I say another cousin of mine who was really strong, influential in my life. I don't even talk about this stuff. I'm so happy you asked me this. Um, was my cousin Dion. I had a cousin Dion that used to come pick up me and my other cousin, um, David, he would come take us. He used to work with a lot of, a lot of kids, inner city, inner city kids, and so a lot of different after-school programs and stuff like that and community centers he used to work for. So he used to come and pick me up and uh, he would take us, you know, just for hours just to go play basketball, just to go hang out, just just take us out of our environment. Um, and that was also that was something very, very precious to me. And even even at home, my my parents also, too, like like when I when I tell these stories, it sounds like, oh, man, it was just so crazy. And so like it was always darkness. It wasn't like that. And my mother was like such a lovable person, like such a lovable person. She was such a great listener. And 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 when I, you know, eventually I talk about it, losing her was hard. But she was just such a such an amazing all around person, you know, very, very. Uh, much so active in her friends' lives, very much there for you type of person. And I would say the same thing for my for my for my stepfather also too. Seeing him growing up, and the way that he was, you know, he would never buy, like you know, on Christmas we kept Christmas, so like he would never like get stuff for us without getting stuff for everybody's kids in the immediate family. Like you know what I'm saying? Like it, those type of things. Literally, there were people in my house. My house was a was a hot spot. No doubt about it. There was trafficking going on. But not only that, my door was open to so many people who lived with us at many different times of their life. And there was always people sleeping by us, staying by us. Anybody who you were, if you wanted a meal, my mother would make sure that there was enough food. She didn't cook just for our house. She cooked for everybody in the neighborhood. So everybody was coming to my 
house eating. So I grew up in a home where it was always busy with people coming in. Obviously, there was some illegal activity, but it was a lot of love at the same time in my home. I don't feel like I was deprived of love as a kid. No doubt about it. That's very interesting because I don't think people appreciate that part of your childhood uh, when the story is told over. I'm curious, you go from this environment that we've been discussing to where you are today and how everyone knows you. Can you describe the middle part of the journey? Because you start getting into religion. You had a grandfather was a Sunni Muslim, and you also had a Bible, more than one Bible that you used to use. Can you describe a little bit of what that part, what, what that part of the process was like? Well, I think the biggest thing for me, like I said, I was always um, intrigued. You know, sort of like, you know, I'll give you... I guess I could use I could use the midrash as a muscle for my story. I guess, like you know, it says that uh, it says that when whenever um, Rifka Mena would walk past a, a house of a Vodazar of idol worship, then you know it'd be kicking, and that was Esaf. Whenever she walked past a base midrash, a holy place, uh, you know, study hall, then Yaakov would start kicking. Right? I would say that a person sometimes is neshama inside will start kicking when they get to a place of their element. What? And I always have found religion and the idea of relationship that got very, very intriguing. I don't know why is what I'm saying. None of it, it never it really, it, looking back, it doesn't make sense how it got there. Nobody around me was so spiritual. My father now today, thank God, he's a, he's a, he's a very sweet and individual, but he became a pastor. We have a different religion, but he's still, like I said, one of my most favorite people in the world. However, I didn't grow up with that, though. I didn't grow up with spirituality in the house and different things like that. But whenever I heard it, like, I was, like, always, like, running to hear more about it. Uh, when I was around, I was around five percenters, and in, in, in which is a lot of different, uh, they take a little bit, they take five percent almost from everybody, <laughs> from every religion type of thing. But I was always intrigued to find out more and more and more about God. So um, going through high school, especially after the, 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 um, um, the conversion to Christianity, I used to take my Bible, as I mentioned, and I used to highlight it. I used to just read it. I remember one time I was 16 years old and I remember during this, this certain period of my life, I was I was at home and there was a lot of stuff going on at home. But I used to go and lock myself in my room and I would pray, you know, just for hours, crying, talking to God, about whatever I was going through as my at a teenager. And and, and I remember um it's so interesting because I had dramatically changed my life and even the people I was around and stuff like that. I had ne I didn't know that I had a warrant for my arrest from when I was like 13 years old. I had a warrant for my arrest for a uh, failure to appear in court. In between that time that I was supposed to appear in court for a uh, for a uh, suspicion of malicious mischief. Uh, which I just happened to be with the wrong people at the wrong time. I'm not. I'm not clearing myself. There was a lot of stuff I probably should have gotten in trouble and went to juvenile for. But this one I for sure didn't do. However, uh, I was with the wrong people and at the wrong time. So, long story short, they must have sent something to my house. In the meantime, my house had burned down. So I was in the house, you know, uh, when it when it actually burned down. That when was it the actually night you burned broke down. the windows with the radios, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. I remember, so I guess I'll tell that story, which leads to this story. So we were out late. We had these walkie-talkies, me and my boys, and we were going around, you know, to test out the walkie-talkies breaking windows. Now, this happened to have been in the Central District. By the way, I don't know who this is going to reach, anybody who lived in the Central District during that time, Father's Day 2013. I will never forget it. Please be mocha me, forgive me. I'm a changed man. Now, we went around breaking windows and running for the police. We were picking up their radio. They were on our, It was like a whole whole thing. Anyway, 
Um, so we managed to skip and go back to the other side of town. Now, because of the gang territory, that was the other side. So for sure, the police wouldn't think that we would escape, go back to the other side where I actually grew up at. So, um, so we were, we were in my house. A bunch of my friends were over, and which they snuck into my house. My family didn't even know I had that many friends. They probably wouldn't have cared anyway, but they they did. Anyway, a lamp falls over, and uh, it it burns up the blanket of a of a really close friend of mine. Um, and he ends up running out of the house. He was afraid because the fire kept catching so fast. So all whoever was downstairs, they ran out. And now it just so happened that I didn't sleep in my room that, that day. And it was amazing because had I slept in my room, I would have been trapped by the fire. So I didn't sleep in my room. I slept in my sister's room. She wasn't there. And that was upstairs. So because I had strong asthma, I was waking up from all the smoke. It was a lot, a lot of smoke. I was coughing, coughing. And uh, by the time I opened my eyes, I couldn't see anything. The whole house was smoking. So with a little bit of vision I had, got myself dressed, and I, I banged on my on my parents' room, and they all we all ran out of the house. And I'm lit. I'm telling you, it was like felt like seconds, but it was at least maybe four or five minutes. We watched the whole entire house go up in flames. And uh, as I've mentioned elsewhere, just hearing the glass breaking reminded me of the glass I was breaking the night before. It was almost like, you know, tip for tat, you know. And so <clears throat> because of that incident, uh, we were misplaced for about 10 months before they rebuild our house. <clears throat> um, we were misplaced for about 10 months. So there was a lot of mail that was getting lost in the, you know, in the in the midst of everything. So I didn't know that I had a warrant or, or I, was, I, I was supposed to appear in court. So time goes on. To, now we're three years later. And, you know, by this time, you know, I, if I'm not Gandhi, I'm Mother Teresa. Whoever is a saintly to you, I don't care. Um, I, but I was I was very much so, I was a good kid by this time. I'm already in high school now. That was middle school. I mean, completely different guy. And uh, I was at a cousin's house. I was staying there for like a track meet or something like that. We had a track meet the next day. I don't know why he was still further away from home, but I stayed by him. Long story short, we're leaving on our way to school. We get about three or four blocks away from school, we noticed that there's a lot of minivans, you know, um, just out. It was just we noticed that they were traveling, and it seemed like they had been traveling with us, but we haven't really noticed it too much. We came to a certain intersection, and all of a sudden, all these minivans stopped us. They pulled out, and on all sides, lights start flashing on these minivans, and they come out with guns. It was the U.S. Marshals. U.S. Marshals were looking for Uncle of mine. The car we was in, red, hot red Cadillac that we were in, uh, was in, in his name. Uh, he wasn't with us. But, of course, they're going to do the due diligence and check. We were big boys, me and my cousin. They check us. And lo and behold, I have a warrant for my arrest. I had no idea about it. So they called the SPD, Seattle Police Department. They come take me um, in handcuffs, and I go to juvenile for a few days. Now, I go into this place, and I am like... I, I don't I don't know how to explain to you. I, I feel like I walked into an insane asylum. These kids, every single kid was jumping and it was like crazy, you know, wild teenagers, gangsters. It was just it was crazy. But for some reason, I had such a peace, such a calmness inside of me. And I went inside my room, my little had a Bible in there and a toilet and whatever. And, and, and I start praying and I'm talking to God. I'm reading to him. They were Psalms to me back then. I had such a most the most peaceful time that I'm in there. And uh, maybe after a day or so, I think it was before my court hearing, um, I got a buzz that I had a visitor. 
so I go up and I to go meet this visitor. His name was John Reed. He was my uh, was my uh, my counselor and sort of my mentor for sure, for sure my mentor at this time. And he walks in and he's laughing, and he's laughing so hard. I have no idea why he's laughing. I start laughing because he's laughing. And at the end of him laughing, I asked him. I said, "Why why are we laughing?" He said, "You know, every day after the groups and the different." programs and Bible study groups that we had, you know, I take you last. And he said, the last thing, the thing you've been saying to me for the last couple of weeks was that you wanted time with just you and God alone. He says, be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. So that was me at 16 years old. I was already trying to find my place um, close to God. So th- that was my my middle years. And then, like I said, that transition really happened really my the end of my 11th grade years when it started you know with the music and I don't really think I went full force into entering back into I would say complete secular lifestyle until I was like 19 and I was still trying to work that out I met my wife my 10th grade year in between my 10th grade year and my 11th grade year um and uh, we started dating my 11th grade year I don't recommend everybody start Shaduchim in high school but that's 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 what happened for me and Baruch Hashem, we've been together ever since. And uh, so there was a lot of different things uh, along the way, but those were some of, the, some of the highlights, at least. Okay, so you get to the point you decide it's going to be Judaism. How do you tell your wife, family, and friends? Were they all accepting? So at the beginning, you know, my wife grew up very strong Christian, so it's a little bit different. I, I sort of have somewhat of, I would say, a bracha. Since I was a convert to Islam, I was a convert to Christianity, and then converting to Judaism, I, I, I sort of have a different type of, like, open-mindedness to trying to seek truth. When you grow up a certain way, it's sort of ingrained to you that what you believe is... is a, so so some, to some degree, sometimes it's harder or easier, I guess, uh, to, to make a change. But for in my wife's case, it was a lot harder. More so, she was worried about was the holiday. She has sort of already been on her own journey. She grew up more um, uh, more traditionally Christian, I think originally Baptist, and then to Pentecostal and from Pentecostal Church of uh, Kojic, they would call Church of Christ and God. So she she had went through all of that. And then so on her own journey, she had found her way to becoming Seventh-day Adventist, which is where I met her. So she kind of, I guess I would say, moving sort of in that direction of realize she, you know, she realized that the Sabbath was a Sabbath. So certain things were easy for her um, um, in terms of, you know, transitioning. But other things were hard, family, Christmas, Easter. So, you know, I've been doing a lot of studying uh, around the time um, that at, right after I got out of that situation, I was doing, I mean, I was spending maybe eight hours a day going through all these different texts. I had a, a few different versions of the Christian Bible, uh, Quran. I was going through JPS Tanakh, Chumash. I was going like eight hours a day in between all these different texts. I was spending a lot of time with Rabbi Google, uh, watching a lot of YouTube videos and debates and different things. But I was, I was really truth-seeking. Yeah, that was a big one. No, that was that was huge. That was a little bit later, but that was huge. That was huge. Um, so, right, like even prior to that, where I was holding was I was just the last thing I was trying to do was find a new religion, because in my head, religion let me down. Right, believing in religion led me to believe in things that I w- was coming to find were not a hundred percent accurate. Right. 
And so because of that, I sort of felt like, you know, I guess I'm a little bit of a rebellious soul anyway, kind of like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I don't know if I'm so rebellious to God, but I'm rebellious to, to systems, you know? And so for me, so for me, it was very, very hard for me to say like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for another religion. I just really chalked it up to the fact that like, Hey, I'm looking for God. I'm going to find him. So what ends up happening is, um, I'm going through all these different texts and now I'm confused, right? So what do I do? I'm reading all these different texts. So I start doing what the people inside of them doing. I started fasting. I was going three days without food, going out, crying to God, to my eyes with like bloodshot red. I was, I was in such, but the euphoric and, and spiritual bliss that came during this time and the clarity that was coming to me was unlike anything I'd ever experienced ever before in my life. Uh, so because of that, I was highly motivated. So I remember sitting my wife down and saying to her, you know, I want to stop Christmas and Easter and all that. She was like definitely <laughs> ready to like, we just got married, but we're getting a divorce. <laughs> you know, like this is not what I signed up for. And she had no idea what I was doing with all the whatever she had seen and, and, and sensed and felt the change, but she didn't know really where I was going with things. Um, and so after some time, we studied together and we came to the conclusion that you know, we, we were on this path. We didn't know where we were going, but we we're on this path of trying to find the truth. And that led to her um, inspiring her sister, um, which uh, at the time was dating my best friend. And now they're also both married and uh, they're married and, and here living with us in Eretz Israel. So it was all four of us on this journey. And so, yeah, of course, now we have uh, we have, you know, at least three families, my wife and, 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 and my sister-in-law, they have their family that they have to. And then my, my brother-in-law, Yosef, has his family, I have my family. And, uh, yeah, we got to break some news to some people that uh, and, and you know what? The truth is, everything happened really organically. And the more and more that we, you know, engaged and went around we just really felt like the environments weren't good for us it wasn't conducive to our growth and over time just our relationships with family just kind of waned and, and I feel like it's important to some degree I, I I would say now I have a great relationship with my family um, as opposed to at the beginning it was very very tough but it was a very very necessary toughness like how would you ever know who you are how would you ever know um um who you're to be spiritually if you always have people who are who you love telling you who you are and what you're supposed to be right so it's very very hard to do i mean even you know even even in our religious world it's very very hard to be a person so makusha to the parents and so, so it's very hard to have the spiritual growth that you that you need to be be able to become the person that that Hashem wants you to be so um so we went on that journey and it, it led us away from family for a very long time. And it was very hard for them to accept uh, what we were doing. Some people were fine. I think my, my father uh, was fine because he, he, by this time, was a pastor and a theologian. And he gave up everything his whole life before um, for religion. He understood that, that. But he was probably the only person that was really strongly supportive um, throughout this. And, um, and, like, you know, here we are. <laughs> it was like... I don't know how many years later since that since that journey, 13 years later or so. And looking back, everybody's like so supportive and, and so with us and, and such big fans of the process. So That's great. Before I ask the next question, I wanted to point out that you said you were a gangster rapper in the past with the wrong crowd. I think I saw something somewhere that when reporters came to interview you, they were always surprised that you were so nice to them. <laughs> 
Right, right. I'm curious, we spoke about your past already, and there's a lot of information about it on many online platforms. Are your kids aware of this upbringing you had? Is it something that you sat them down and told them about your past and going forwards as well? Even if it's not a trip to Seattle, will you tell them about where you came from? Or is it more of, uh, I'm your father and let's go? It's a very good question. I... I myself am more in favor of uh, like my daughter's fifteen now. I'm much more in favor of her knowing where we came from. You know, I I will hope and think that it would inspire her, not not the opposite. My wife's a little less uh, enthusiastic about sharing with the kids where we came from. Uh, she's more schmeredic in that type of. I mean, all around she is, but I think that for her, it's something that she would be less comfortable with. So um, obviously, I can't be like. Oh yeah, it's it's something that we need to do. Um, if my wife is not so comfortable with it right now, and so I, I, I and, and if she's not, then that that means probably means that Hashem's more on her side than he is on mine. You know what I mean? With that, so I, that's sort of where I hold with it. Uh, we haven't told them much. We we you know we don't tell them not nothing. You know, my mother-in-law was just here in Israel with us for like six months. She stayed by us and. And uh, can't wait to get back, actually. Um, unfortunately, I had to go back because of a medical emergency, but uh, she would love to be back here and, uh, and and how much she enjoyed it, the life, the culture. Being there at this world was, like, life-changing for her. She won't stop talking about getting back. So so for, for you know, that experience, having, you know, Nana here and having all of us, yeah, she, my kids heard a lot, but a lot of the fun things, but they don't know none of the stories that I share, not unless some somebody else told their kid and they hear it at school or something like that, where they probably wouldn't believe it because they know me now. <laughs> so, yeah. Rap for you is something you are always naturally drawn to and talented in. Um, but when it comes to Jewish music, a lot of people are big fans of Jewish rap, and some people are not as big of a fan. They say the beats, the thoughts, the culture are not always things that are so aligned with uh, Judaism. I know in the past you went on the Ben Shapiro show and defended rap as a genre, but in terms of Jewish rap, what do you have to say to those people who are not so inclined to purchase your tickets? Listen, I think the biggest thing is that we, we just have to define things properly, right? A lot of times people mistake um, mistake preference for Emma's, you understand what I mean? And sometimes it's a matter of perspective. Like if my perspective is 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 one way, then it must mean that Hashem agrees with me. Why? Because I thought it, you know. I don't know what the, what the reason would be. But I think a lot of times it's, it's just a matter of perspective, right? So people have to really understand that I grew up, so being a person who grew up with hip-hop, right, so I can hear and know the difference between something that's positive and something that's negative. For a person who doesn't understand it, like, I, you know, I pick a genre I know. I don't know different types of opera you know what i'm saying like even even in the world of genres that i do touch like edm there's so many different type of edm tracks progressive rock progressive house this future bass all this there's so many different genres in the and i don't know it's just an edm beat to me you know understand what i'm saying so like for me it's all the same thing so a lot of times um people uh look at that or they'll look at uh, you know what's what we know today is as as the hip hop culture, aka which is which is usually used to be synonymous with with current black culture, which is not really most of what we see today that we would would attribute to black culture. It's not actually black culture. It's a hijacking of black culture. Black culture was Black Wall Street. Black culture was uh you know. Um, was was Tuskegee, uh, you know, Institute. These, that's real black culture. Um, today, over the years, because of uh, 
personal interests and gains black culture has shifted to to you know what makes money for people who are not black um so that's that's generally what people see today and the way that they touch you know black culture and hip-hop is in a certain way and i and i understand it is because that's what's constantly promoted but there's a very very big difference most people don't know i think the first rap song um ever recorded to date was in 1954 um I think the name of the group was called The Luminaries. It's been surfacing a lot online right now. I think they were The Luminaries. If you look it up, 1954, first rap song. Now, everybody would tell you, ask the most hip-hop people, oh, yeah, you know, 1979, you know, Rapper's Delight, Sugar Hill Gang. But there was actually a rap song first recorded in 1954 um, by The Luminaries. And you know what the subject was? Noah's Ark. This is what it was. It was a biblical story. So people don't, wouldn't know that, and they look at rap today, and they say, oh, wow, well, you know, it can't be that there's there's anything good. And it's a matter of perspective. You know, I have a, I have a, a HBO series that I'm working on right now, and we had to look for writers. And obviously— you know, that writer has to be somebody that's very, very familiar with Jewish culture, has to be familiar with black culture in order for this series to, you know, uh, be authentic in the way that it's written. And um, so we were approaching a few different writers. I'm not going to say the person's name. Very, very, very accomplished, uh, award-winning. Um, and and that person, you know, couldn't even continue to have the conversation with us because he said just the fact of him ever thinking that there's anything positive about religious Jews, he said, is just like he can't even like wrap his head around that there's anything positive about them. Now, that's a matter of perspective, right? So what type of conversation we have for him? He views that the way that some of these people look at rap music. Now, we know that that's not that's not true, right? So what I mean by that is it's just a matter of perspective. People, people have had, to, I've seen people have that perspective about uh, me and really, really bad ones in, until they met me and I've talked to them face to face and they said like, wow, I really had you touched all wrong. So I think sometimes it's just a matter we mistake preference for for what for for what's actually Emma's. So years ago, I was talking to a good friend of mine. It happens to be another Jewish rapper, Lachaim Oji. Actually, we were talking about it. we're having a heated, uh, heated discussion about something. I can't remember what it was, uh, but um, I remember him saying like, listen. There are our feelings, and that's one category. Like you know, he, he said, and then there's the truth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And our feelings may be something that's very different than what the actual truth may be. And so, for me, I've always found it to be that there, that there, we have this issue a lot of times. No matter who you are, that when you have a certain perspective about someone or about music or about a certain people, about a certain group, that you can sometimes be confusing your feelings about things for the actual truth, um, in which it takes a lot of, you know, um, self-searching and seeking and a lot of uh, spiritual sifting to see that there's a difference between the way you feel about something and what the actual truth is. Because the actual truth is there's people coming to Chuva from rap music. There's people who are coming closer to Hashem. I get, there's no, there's no day almost that goes by, you know, without hearing from people how much my music has made a tremendous, tremendous impact on somebody's spiritual life. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it's just a, it's a wrong touch and, should be person should investigate things a little bit more before they have certain opinions very interesting it's already over time and i appreciate you staying this long there's a recurring segment where we ask rapid fire questions i'll ask you three of those and we'll go to the last question do you have a favorite line from any of your songs 
Um, so I have a new album coming out in November. I don't know which and which order I'm going to release which single. Uh, but I think the most powerful thing that I've written, I have a song called Someone Else um, that really uh, means a lot to me. Um, but it, it one of the lines I says over there is that, you know, there, there was two lines that kind of flow close together. One thing was, I you know, um, talking about all my life, you know, I just wanted to fit in, but then I found out I was too big. I was too big to fit in. And the, the other thing I would say from that same song is that, and now I have to face myself after trying to erase myself. Um, and they, these are, those are probably my favorite lines of unreleased songs. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's off the top of my head. <laughs> those are things we'll have to look out for, and I'll try to let the listeners know about them when they come out. The next question is, you mentioned Lachaim OG, and you have songs where you collab with a bunch of other singers and rappers like Kosher Dills, and there's also a startup younger rappers like Warren Tati. Is there any Jewish rapper right now other than yourself that brings you the most joy to listen to? There's a there's a young guy um, who I just, uh, he's actually on my album. His name is Oria. Um, it's not really rap. I mean, I guess he would consider himself rap. Most people be like, oh yeah, that's rap music, but he's more, more melodic, um, sort of like rap more melodic rap his name is Uriah um I think he's he's really really good uh somebody who obviously was good enough to be on the new album and uh somebody that I really really uh think that a lot of people are going to enjoy the more and more he gets out there and the last of the rapid fire questions is when you think back to all your performances where's your favorite one been mm, that's a very good question come on why are you gonna do that you know <laughs> that means I have to alienate other places I I'm gonna say the fun. I say the one of the most memorable places. Um, wow, this there were so many. Um, I'm sorry. You know what? I I'll say one of the 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 funnest shows I had was uh was uh I had a show called the Defrost. Um, it was my own show that I threw at the Master Theater in Brooklyn. And uh, one of the reasons why it was it was my favorite show, um, because just, you know, you know, after you work so hard for something, you know, was, I, I threw my own show. Shout out to Nussin Gross, He was with me on there. We, we encountered so much like backlash. What you were saying was about uh, <clears throat> about how certain people looked at rap. I mean, we went through things that a lot of the typical Jewish outlets wouldn't let us advertise there. We, uh, the Jewish website where we were selling tickets, it was hacked on the day of the show, and then we were down for five hours on ticket day, and it was intentional. They were able to see it inside. Uh, we went through, like, insurmountable challenges to, to pack out that place and sold it out, and to, the love that was there that night Um like put me in tears you know what I'm saying to see that you know we we fought so hard to do that just to reach the people because a lot of Jewish promoters and different things like that won't won't have me come I'm not I'm not safe enough I don't fit the bill even though a lot of people may listen to Nisim Black in the in the own home but the you know it's it's not something all the time that everybody wants out in the open so a lot I'm not saying nothing against the promoters but a lot of them will never have me for none of the big shows it's not a by demand it's more so about what what what's safe <laughs> You know, so so that was one of that was the motivation really for throwing that show and for it to be successful as it was, just to be able to go to the people because, as as awesome as it is, but I I, I was put here to bring people closer to Hashem and I realized it's about myself and my neshama. So I said, Hashem, like listen, we're gonna go to your your children on our own. I'm not gonna wait for somebody else to do it. And to just the power and the impact, I think, 
of you know of of that show and what it meant for me and what it meant for everybody that was in the room that night was something beyond powerful you know and I think we came back the next year Hanukkah sold it out you know twice in the same day or something like that also too so very very beautiful beautiful experience for me that sounds like a great experience and before i ask the last question i'll mention that owing to nisim's youtube channel will be in the description and as was mentioned i'll try to post about the hbo series and nisim's podcast when it comes out all these things i want to ask you about but uh there's not enough time and you already gave up so much time shout out to aaron fogelson also your manager who i worked with for over a year to arrange uh, a time for this interview the last question of every episode is the same which is that you've been asked so many uh questions by so many other podcasts and speaking to fans so often and you, you always get the questions and there's there's literally dozens of hours of content with you on the internet in video form audio form for people to read but despite the fact that there are constant questions um there are always things people wish they were asked that they never were so looking back at everything you have been asked what's a question you've never been asked that you wished you were and what answer would you give to it <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I guess a question that I've never been asked that I would like to be asked. Um, I guess there was a lot of people who, you know, That's a very good question. <laughs> I can't even think of a question that haven't been asked that I would have wanted to be asked. Uh, um, I mean, I guess, I guess one of the things more recently that I've been coming into grips with is that, um, you know, I'm very much so like a um, a people person. Like I, I'm not, you know, I. I I very much so. I don't want to make this sound like a like a fake thing, but I I understand very well, you know, uh, my role, you know, in in terms of, you know, as much as as I've been able to understand what I've been put here to do, and so with that, I I take what I do very very seriously, and so a lot of people, um, like I said, I'm usually touched in a certain light to where, you know, I remember I was I was a a few years ago, I was by Big Tzaddik in Yerushalayim, uh, Ravichu Meyer Morgenstern. I'm by him quite often, but this 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 particular story happened a few years ago. And some guy came up to me and says, Nisi, you're like so inspired. This is a sweet, very sweet chassid. He's a bit older than me, but he says, Nisi, like, you go out, you go do your thing. He said, but then when I see you, it's always in a in a makum kadosh. <laughs> you're always in some holy place or whatever. And how many times people have talked to him? It's like, wow, Nisim, your, your scoffers are actually intact. Like, you know, and it's sort of like it's a mistouch from like the music and maybe what the presentation is to who I am as an individual. And that, you know, when I'm not touring and I'm not out in front of people, you know, what I'm saying I'm in my corner in the base midrash, or, um, you know, I'm out here in the mountains of Beit Shemesh crying out there, Shem. Like, so, and that's who my, that's who my person is. That's who I am as an individual. So, um, I think a lot of times, I don't know how you ask that question, but I think that a lot of people would mistake me for, for something else. Um, so I think that that's probably something important for people to know. You know, I recently had updated something on my WhatsApp. Now, mind you, I've only had, 
I had a smartphone for the, like the last three years or whatever, and it's very strongly filtered. It was Mugan and, and whatever. So it took me a long time, even after I had the smartphone, to get into WhatsApp. I don't like being like feeling like I'm losing to the, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to technology and to the secret powers as be. So it took, but you know, one of the things that I recently had updated was it's like, listen, if it's not talkless, don't like message me. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't, I don't have extra time. We're only here in this world for a little bit of time. You know, I'm not, I'm not a chiller. You know, people are like, yeah, Nisim, let's get together, let's chill. I don't chill. I don't chill. If we're not like learning or we're not, you know, doing something to advance a vote of or bring a ship's name of the way, I really, I'm not a hangout type of guy. Not against people who do it. It's just not a part of my thing. You know. Okay, very interesting. And, and is there anything else you want to mention before we end the episode? Yeah, look at the single. So we did uh, Hua Melech, me and Gadel Baz, which really I think kicked off for him the beginning promotion of his album. And uh, also, just to say, my album will be released. My album will be released in, in November, Bezat Hashem. Uh, but until November, every month, at the end of the month, I'm going to be releasing a new song, new video, um, uh, up until the coming of the album. Stuff I've never done before. And I, 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 I think that anybody who... Who, who does know me, or, or even those who have not been so fun, I think if they pay attention very closely, I think a lot of the things that we capture in this interview will come forth in these new singles and visuals. I think we took it up to a whole, whole nother level um, with these with these upcoming productions. So I'm very, very excited to share that with the, with the people. So the name of the new album is, uh, new album's name is Glory, by the way. So I'll let everyone look out for the, the new album and all the singles and, and uh, keep your track. Keep uh, keep following Nisim. Thank you again for joining. I I really enjoyed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this past episode of the Jewish Moves podcast. To get our latest updates and contact us, you can follow us on Twitter at Jews underscore Schmooze. If you want to sponsor an upcoming episode, you can reach out to Jews Marketing at gmail.com. And if you give us a five star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. That will be tremendously appreciated. Thank you so much, and hope you're looking forward to the next episode also. Mm-hmm.